Okay, if you would, please turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 2. I'll be reading Galatians, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, Peter, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Blessed is the reading of God's purposed, infallible, inerrant, holy word through the Apostle Paul recalling this incident. Let's pray. So Father, through what Paul made clear, through the confrontation of sinful actions here, Help us see back into the first century the gravity of this issue and thus how it applies concerning legalism today in our lives and the threat of it always to keep the gospel clear, to keep the gospel truth and preserve it to the glory of Jesus and to the salvation of souls and to the freedom that there is in Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> you know, the. Well, let me just say it that way because as, as, I, as I dealt with this passage again, I mean, there's an implication that, that boy, it can apply all over the place. And here's one implication of it. Please. Please, please, if you are living or go in the future and decide to live an unrepentant life against the Christian lifestyle that is clearly laid out in the New Testament, please don't tell people you're a professing Christian. Because actions preach. They speak often louder than words. So if you decide to live a life of drunkenness or fornication or adultery or to be just a mean-spirited gossip or a self-righteous, judgmental, religious legalist 
or an extorter of people's money through shady business practices, then stop referring to yourself as a believer in Jesus Christ. Because you're preaching. It's loud and it's deceptive to those who hear that so-called gospel of Christ. What, What we have in our passage this morning is Paul confronting the Apostle Peter. He's essentially saying, Peter, what you believe and preach theologically on this issue, and that is really important, absolutely. And you and I, Peter, we totally agree on the Gospel concerning this issue. But, over the last couple months, your lifestyle choices on how you are to live are preaching an untruth to the Gentile believers and you're causing them to feel compelled to confuse the meaning of the Gospel. We can go home. That's our text. But let's just see it more clearly than what's happening here. Remember, Paul's writing to the Galatians. There are Jewish Christians coming from Jerusalem. We're referred to them as the Judaizers. They come behind Paul's mission of planting churches and say, Paul got the resurrection of Jesus right. He's the Messiah. You've got to have faith in Him to be saved. But he left out some things. And Paul says what they're saying is not just a twist of the Gospel. It totally turns it upside down and anathema upon those who preach it. But in so doing, they also had to belittle Paul. They had to say Paul is an underling to the other apostles. And therefore, starting in chapter 1, Paul has for the sake of the Galatian Christians. He doesn't like to do it, but he has to defend his genuine apostleship that came directly from the Lord Jesus in His Gospel that came from Him. So we saw last week in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, in that Jerusalem meeting, Paul says this in verse 3, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek, a non-Jew. To them, that is the false teachers in the church of Jerusalem, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So for Paul, if he would have yielded on this issue so there's no hurt feelings, it's all get along, to him in yielding to the false Christians there, the gospel would have been destroyed. And as he said in that text, his work as an apostle, as a missionary, would be in vain because these guys would follow him everywhere. Appealing to, well, Peter, James, and John agree with us and Paul says, no, they don't. So why is Paul so strong that it would destroy the gospel? Because the gospel that is We sinners, to get right with God, 
The Gospel says that was all purchased by Jesus Christ. And the only way to have that grace of the cross applied to you personally is to live by faith. Trust in that wonderful message and grace that purchased all of the promises for you. That's how Paul will end chapter 2, isn't it? Faith in the Son of God is how I live, who loved me and gave Himself up for me. That's where Paul's leading. And therefore, if you add any requirements which encourage people to rely on their own performance of certain religious acts, you destroy the gospel of justification being made right with God by faith alone. And you also destroy the implication of sanctification, living out the rest of your life, is by faith, which does produce works, but not by works. So the question is, do you get tempted or do you add your own personal, moral improvements as a requirement for, okay, God's now smiling at me. He's on my side now. Oh, bad week, not there. Hmm. Do you try to do really good as a believer in order that God would be for you? That's a gospel issue. So as we come here in chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, here we see again the gospel of Jesus Christ is at stake. Here, it's at stake in the actions of Peter. Remember in the Jerusalem meeting, the issue was circumcision. The Jewish law for the covenant people of Abraham and under Moses, under the law, to circumcise every boy on the eighth day in your family. It's a sign of the covenant. The issue was circumcision in Jerusalem. Now we go to Antioch, 300 miles up north, a Gentile church, but it's mixed with Jews in it. And the issue is Mosaic, Book of Leviticus, Jewish dietary laws, where he says, Actually, in chapter 2, verse 5, Paul said, the truth of the gospel is at stake. Now, he says in verse 14, I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. And that's the issue. So, okay, I'm going to try my best to try to paint a picture of what I think is happening here. Men came from James. Okay, James is Jesus' brother, whom Jesus made an apostle after his resurrection and appeared to him. James, clearly from the early chapters of Acts, clearly here from Paul, Luke, and other 
extra outside the Bible writings, James was a major figure in the leadership of the church of Jerusalem in the first century. Okay. James, think about it. What's going on with him? He is concerned with evangelism. He's concerned with evangelizing who? Or the Jews. He's in Jerusalem. He's not going on missions worse. He, he's the head honcho of the church of Jerusalem with thousands of Jewish Christians in it, but there are more unbelieving Jews whom they want to evangelize. So he's in his own culture that he grew up in, which is a culture of circumcision, kosher diet, particular ways you do ceremonial washings before you eat, Sabbath keeping, new moons, festivals. That's his culture. He is in that culture, wants to reach those who don't believe in Jesus with the gospel. So you've got to feel that. Okay. Theologically, we have already seen James fully agrees with the Apostle Paul, and so does Peter, that non-Jews do not have to become Jewish in order to truly be saved in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. Okay? They all agree on that now. They don't need to be circumcised. They don't need to keep the works of the law of Moses, these Jewish laws of kosher, and etc. They don't have to do that. That's clear. They all agree. But the issue of whether a Jew who comes to Jesus is free to not practice Jewish cultural laws, ceremonial laws like circumcision, kosher diet, Sabbath, that hadn't been addressed, for one. Just we haven't seen it addressed in, in the book of Acts or, or, or here in Galatians so far. And so I think James is thinking if word gets out that the Jews in the diaspora, the Jews away from the homeland, you got to understand, in the first century, there were many more Jews that lived outside of Palestine, than the land of Israel, Jerusalem and Judea and Galilee, that lived outside of that than lived there. So if, and if word gets out that, oh, this Jesus sect within Judaism up in Antioch, and there's a bunch of Jews up there who have come to faith in Jesus, and they're just forsaking Moses. They're eating lobster and baby back ribs and all kinds of other stuff that Moses says don't eat as a Jew. Okay, if word gets back that that's what this Jesus stuff to do, James is fearful that that's just going to shut down evangelism to the tens and tens of thousands that live in Jerusalem and the hundreds of thousands that, that matriculate to Jerusalem a few times a year for the festivals. Evangelism is shut down. Oh yeah, just forsake your entire culture. Come to Jesus. Yeah, it's going to happen. Forsake Moses, the Bible. That's what I think he's fearing. He's got to deal with two problems, James. The problem of many of these Jews who have become Christians, and they don't like Peter's theology on this now. And they don't like James's theology, and they hate Paul. Then they're called the circumcision party. Then there are the unbelieving Jews that they want to reach. So, okay, there's Jerusalem for a moment. Now let's go back to our text. Peter now. This is about 15 years after Pentecost. Okay, okay? 
Peter finally takes a, a mission trip up to the church. Yeah, I guess it wouldn't be missions yet, but he's going to go visit Antioch. And so he finally gets up to Antioch and he's there. And it's a mixed church. Jews and Gentiles. There's probably thousands within the church in that city now. So, when Peter is invited by Mrs. Gentile and her family to come fellowship and they'll cook dinner, he goes into the non-Jewish home, doesn't do ceremonial washings, starting to like baby back ribs with lots of barbecue sauce. He has no problem with it. That's what he's doing. That's what all the other Christian Jews now who got born again, they're coming to faith in Jesus, and he said, that's right, this is, this is okay. It's what we're doing. They did not think they were being morally polluted by entering Gentile homes and eating Gentile food. You've got to understand how big that statement was. Because separation became so big by the first century within Judaism, that's why they didn't enter Gentile homes. To them, it was to be made impure, unclean. So that's what Peter's doing. He's up there for months, no problem, eating in all kinds of Christian Gentile homes or having all kinds of Bible studies and meetings and, and so are the other Jews and they have no problem. And then a group from the Jerusalem church comes up to Antioch. And Peter becomes afraid. Afraid of what might happen happen if they observe how he's hanging out with Gentiles in their homes eating non-kosher food. So he doesn't want to offend any of these people he loves, Gentile believers. So he's, he's probably, we've all done this in certain ways. Invitation comes and oh man, I'm sorry I can't do it that night. Can't have lunch that day or that minute. Another invitation, there's another reason. Another reason. And it starts to become obvious over weeks that other Jews following Peter is a rock star, right? Even before the internet age of Christianity. I mean, he's up in Antioch and this is Peter. They know all the stories. And so he's got influence whether he likes it or not and other Jews who are believers start following him in it. And it just becomes obvious. He's, when they eat, when they do all that stuff, it's only the Jews who are believers who are doing it together. And that's why Paul says, Peter was in a state of being absolutely wrong. Condemned. Guilty of wrong here. His behavior was out of step with that line, the truth of the gospel. It was incongruent. It was contradictory to what he knows to be true. Okay, there's the background. Let's go to the text. Galatians 2, start with verse 11. <clears throat> but when Cephas, let me stop, you know, so some of you youngers don't know this, this 
guy's name is really Simon, the son of Jonah. Simon Bar-Jonah. Okay, then Jesus gave him a special name, and they spoke Aramaic mainly. Jesus and that band in, in the Jewish homeland. And he says, your name is Cephas. Means rock. That's Aramaic. Well, then, oh, let's write that in Greek. It comes over as Petros, Peter. So you got Cephas, Peter, Paul. His favorite term for Peter is to call him by his Aramaic, Cephas. Okay. Though he does use the word Peter. Verse eleven again. But when Cephas or Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood or was in the state of being condemned. What do you mean, Paul? Well, that's what he goes on to explain now. Verses 12 and 13. So, let's work through it slowly. Verse 12. For before certain men came from James, Jerusalem church, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. I, I can't. I, I, don't, I should have done this. I can't even think of an example. Because if you understood the first century Judaism, that should blow your mind. But it doesn't to us. That was absolutely huge. Not just entering Gentile home. Which Peter would never do and never did until probably almost 40 years old. But eating non kosher food is huge. Peter, though, had come to be convinced that not only were Gentile converts not required to become Jewish, not required to eat according to the kosher law of Leviticus. Not required to be circumcision. Okay. Not only did he come to be convinced of that, but he knew that even as a Jew who was free in Christ, he is not bound to keep those laws. That change for Peter did not come easily. It didn't come easily for any first century religious you. Separation from the world was hugely important. But Jesus finally got it through to Peter's head. About five to seven years after the day of Pentecost. The church is born He's preaching and preaching and preaching, not just for months and not just for a year, not for two, not for three, not for four, but at least five. And he still does not know that persons like me, a non-Jew, can be saved by the Jewish Messiah. Until, and I want you to turn there, Acts 10. Let's go to Acts 10. And what happens in Acts 10 happened before the Jerusalem Council that we saw last week. Now, 
In the context, there, there's a Gentile who likes the Jewish Scriptures. He's a God-fearer. He's a centurion. He's wealthy. Works for Rome and the army. And God one day says, I'm going to get him and I'm going to get a bunch of these Gentiles now. And so he scared the bejeebies out of Cornelius by having an angel appear to him and told him now, take some servants, some of your soldiers, and I want you to go to the town called Joppa. There's a guy there named Simon. Peter. And ask him to come to your house. And he will. And he's going to tell you what you need to do. Okay, so there, there's a context I want you to pick up with verse 9 now. The next day, as they were on their journey, those from Cornelius, now the centurion, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry. And he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in that sheet were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. In other words... Go to Leviticus. All the things that Peter and the Jews were commanded not to eat, that's what's in the sheet. And there came a voice to him. Rise, Peter. Kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means! Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened, I think because it needed to happen, three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. A new era is dawned. Christ has come. He's fulfilled the ultimate purpose and the goal of the law. And now the gospel is to go from the Jews to Jews and then to the Gentiles. Do not call anything now that you eat unclean. And Peter got even the deeper lesson because he gets to Cornelius' house. There's a hole. They're just crammed in there. A bunch of Gentiles. And he preaches. And in verse 28 of Acts 10, he says, You yourselves, Gentiles, know how unlawful it is for a Jew, me, to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common. 
or unclean. And then he goes on to preach the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the Holy Spirit falls on these Gentiles just like it did on the day of Pentecost with Peter and the rest of the Jews. Okay. Years later, he goes to Antioch. He has no problem. Not unclean. The food's not necessarily unclean for me at all. Though I was born a Jew, he's eating Gentile, non-kosher food, hanging out in Gentile homes, enjoying their fellowship, loving together the Savior. Okay. All right, let's go back. Stay in Acts. So you get a feel of the Jerusalem church now. Chapter 11. What happened? Okay, Peter was at Cornelius. He went there, he preached the gospel. It fell. Guess what? Word starts to spread. So, chapter 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea, the land of the Jews, when they heard that the Gentiles also had received the Word of God. They heard that they received the Word of God. Verse 2. So, when Peter got back to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? Okay. Now, in the original, it, 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 it's ekperitames. I just say that because it's the exact same phrase we have in Galatians 2. When Peter feared those of the circumcision. Or translated, the party of the circumcision. There is a big sect within the Jerusalem church that is called the party of the circumcision. What you saw last week, they were the ones trying to compel Titus to be circumcised. They lost. And they didn't say, oh, okay, I guess the apostles have spoken. It's over. They never gave up. So much so, there's Peter in Jerusalem. They have a council. Now, this is cool. This is what we... Okay. Gentiles can be saved. That's the decision. The Holy Spirit has spoken. Flash forward 15 years into the future from then. Paul, after his second missionary journey, he's been gone for a long time, he's gonna, he wants to get back to Jerusalem. He's got a law. He's got, in our, in, our, in, in, in our language, he's got millions of dollars to deliver to the church from raising it from all of his Gentile churches. He wants to get back to Jerusalem. He finally does. And Luke is with him. And we read this in Acts 21, starting with verse 17. Fifteen years later. When we had come to Jerusalem... The brothers received us gladly, Luke says. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he, Paul, related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, that's awesome. Okay, they loved it. We got it, Paul. We're with you. We gave you the right hand of fellowship to the Gentiles. We know God sent you there. Keep preaching the gospel. Excellent. But then he's, they got their own problems in Jerusalem. Okay? They got a huge problem in the church. They said to him, the leaders of the church, You see, brother, how many thousands 
Jews. There are among the Jews of those who have believed. Okay, believers in Jesus in the church of Jerusalem. Thousands of them who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. The laws of Moses, including the ceremonial, including circumcision, including kosher diet, etc. They're all zealous for the law. And not only that, Paul, they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles in the diaspora to forsake Moses. Telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come to Jerusalem. And we will see. And Paul's ready to accommodate to the Jews when he's in a Jewish land. And he will go to the temple and he will help the guys do it. But do not think it was only non-believers in Jesus who wanted him dead when they almost killed him later in the temple. So, Acts 10, Cornelius' house, the sheet. That changed Peter's life and experience concerning the issue. Peter knew that not only Gentiles don't have to become Jewish in all of these ways in order to be saved, but he knew that a Jew is free, him or herself, in Christ from those laws. Peter and Paul are in perfect agreement theologically on this issue. That the only condition of receiving the blessings of the cross of Jesus Christ, the only condition, is a heart of faith in Jesus. Period. End of issue. True for the Gentile and true for the Jew. And therefore, when Peter then, later on, was among the Gentile Christians up there in Antioch, eating non-kosher foods with him, he was walking in step with the truth of the Gospel. And then something happened. Verse 12 again. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but... When they came, he drew back and really, in the original, started to, this process was going on, separating himself, fearing, or because he feared the circumcision party. So, again, remember... Paul and Barnabas have been serving in this church as teaching elders up in Antioch for years. They're there. Eventually, down the road, the Apostle Peter visits Antioch. He's there for months. He's eating with Gentiles. Not at all separating himself by these Jewish customs from them. No problem. He, in other words, lives like a Gentile and not like a Jew up there with a bunch of Gentiles within 
the church. Now, that's what's going on. I don't, it's hard to say what really happened. Maybe Paul went back to Tarsus for a few months or preached at some other places in Syria and Cilicia. We don't know. Maybe he left and then he came back to Antioch. Okay. And he just took days to figure out, this is weird. What is happening now? And he knows what's happening. He's hearing it from Gentiles. He's watching it among the Jews within the church. That's what's going on there. Go back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's not a Gentile city. It is the Jewish city. And the church itself has a problem, a lot of tension within the church over this issue. Circumcision party, they are a pain in the bottom of, for James and the other leaders. It's one thing not to require Gentiles to become Jewish to be saved. It is another. If, if, if the message is true, that, is it really true? That up in Antioch, Jews are forsaking those laws of Moses? If, if that's true and that gets out and it matriculates down to Jerusalem, we're dead. Within the church, an evangelism will be snuffed out. So there's the situation. These guys arrive in Antioch. Some of them are, are of the circumcision party. We don't know if all of them are. And if they had any words with Peter, they might have said something like, Look, I understand, but look, you've got to start pulling away from the Gentiles here. Some of these circumcision party people are here. And if this gets to Jerusalem, you're going to cause the church down there a lot of problems. Peter felt the tension. Didn't want to offend the Gentiles. But he also didn't want to get on the bad side of some of these Christian Jews from Jerusalem. What we do know, according to Paul, he feared. Peter feared the party of the circumcision. He knew that that party within the church, how radical they were. And Peter's going to have to go back home. His home is in Jerusalem. He's one of the head haunters of that church. His home isn't Antioch. And he knows, boy, if this gets out and the word spreads and the tension, he's going to really catch flack when he gets back home to Jerusalem. And so he didn't want to get on their bad side. And he's trying to keep peace with the Gentile believers he wants good relations between the Jewish church and the Gentile church. He tries to do a balancing act. He's not preaching anything against the Gentiles that they have to do anything, but he's as politely as he can turning down invitations. After weeks, it just becomes obvious all the other Jews started flocking into it to the point where even Barnabas must have feared enough about the situation where he wasn't eating with Gentiles anymore. And so you get in verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with Peter so that even Barnabas 
was led astray by their hypocrisy. Now, hypocrisy, it's, the Greek language is where we get our English word, the play actor, to put on the mask, etc. What he means here is that the message wasn't spoken with words, because Peter didn't believe it, neither did Barnabas. But the message they sent by their actions was contrary to what they really believed. And that's why Paul calls it hypocrisy. In other words, feel what the Gentile believers in Jesus must have felt after weeks, month, two months of this. We always knew that Jews kept themselves separate and they had law after law after law, day after day, new moons and everything to keep themselves distinct, whether they're in Jerusalem or in the diaspora cities. We always have known that. They did it in order to keep themselves clean and not unclean by us. Gentiles, that was their theology. We've always known that. But we thought Jesus was enough. We thought Jesus was the great equalizer of Jew and Gentile. Now it's becoming obvious that Joshua, Simeon, and Simon, and Barney, and Peter and their wives. It's becoming obvious, even though we all are in the church, that they're separating themselves from us, particularly concerning eating habits. Does this mean that we should also become Jewish in order to be accepted, I mean, fully into the Jewish Messiah? That's why I think Paul says, how can you compel Gentiles? That's the old translation. How can you force Gentiles to become Jewish? Peter is not preaching any message that you guys have to become Jewish. It's the implication that's going on in the hearts and the souls and the confusion within the non-Jewish believers in Antioch that has Paul so angry because he knows it's ultimately going to destroy the gospel if it's not dealt with. So let me just... Let me tell you the one huge implication that I think comes out of this text and the rest of the New Testament on the issue, and that is this. It is okay for those who are born Jews and they have their own culture to maintain Jewish customs if they want, particularly when they're in Jewish cultures like Jerusalem in order to keep the doors open for evangelism, as long as they don't look at any of those actions as necessary for them in order to be saved by Jesus. They could do that. Listen to how Paul spoke when he wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 9, verse 20. To the Jews, and he, he was born a Jew, Pharisee, Pharisees. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, you've got to hear, his, got to hear how Paul loves clarity. To those who are under the law, I became as one 
who is under the law. Then he stops and makes clear, though not being myself under the law, he says, I did this so that I might win to Jesus those who are under the law. Okay. So when you're with the Jews and it's a totally Jewish culture, you come to Jesus, want to keep eating kosher and everything else, let's do our festivals, let's do our Sabbath meals. Fantastic. Went into Jesus. There's one principle. The other principle is this. When the Gentiles are involved and you go to Gentile cities and Gentile cultures, accommodation works from the Jews outward to the Gentiles, not the other way around. And so Paul says to them in verse 14, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the Gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, the whole church, because what was happening with Peter and thus the rest of the Jews who followed him in it, and even Barnabas, and how it is affecting even the Gentiles now, it's a public church matter. It needed to be dealt with publicly. I said to him before the whole church, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, which you've been doing, Peter, until these men came, you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force or compel or imply that Gentiles need to live like Jews? They were acting contrary to the truth of this issue. And that's why Paul confronted it. Jewish Christians are not to shun contact with or to shun eating with Gentiles for the sake of the Gospel. And so he says, if this, then that. If, Peter, like me, Paul, you know the truth like I do. We eat with Gentiles. We accommodate to the Gentiles. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel force the Gentiles to live like Jews. Okay, Peter's caught. See, he knows, I don't want to do that. But he also knows it became inevitable and it's happening. Peter wanted to keep peace. He wanted to keep peace with the wrong-headed circumcision party. They're, they're big pain in the bottom in Jerusalem where he's going back home. He wanted to keep peace with them in the Jerusalem church. And he wanted to keep peace with the Gentiles. That's what he's trying to do. Hoping it would all blow over. And it didn't. It blew up in his face. It confused the Gentile believers in Jesus and caused them to feel maybe we are second class citizens. I don't like to be a second class citizen. 
How come Peter doesn't eat with us anymore? Maybe if we just go ahead and men get ceremonially circumcised, we only start to get us practice eating kosher and be like that, maybe we could be first class Christians. That's the situation. I just think to make it clear because people, I think, misinterpret this text. Paul and Peter did not disagree. They don't have a different theology on this issue. They both agree that you accommodate to the Gentiles. The whole problem had to do with sin. The text says, Peter feared. And his fear drove him to make choices. And that was sin. And that sin is the sin of hypocrisy, which if not dealt with, Paul thinks it will destroy the gospel. Because it implies you must do this or that in order to be in the in crowd with God. In order to really be made right with God through Christ. Do these things and we'll start eating with you again. As I close, let me just draw a few lessons, I think, that we can glean from this passage. The first is this. Know the truth of the Gospel that now at this juncture, Paul is making the transition to lay out. Okay, He's talking to Peter. We ended in verse 14, and then he goes into, Peter... You and I are Jews by birth, by nature. We're not Gentile sinners, but even you and I realize that didn't do anything concerning salvation for us, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. And he starts to go on to argue for the core of the gospel. And therefore, here's that first lesson. Over the weeks to come, continue to learn, continue to know, continue to think about, continue to embrace the essence of the gospel of being justified before God's sight by faith alone in Jesus Christ, not by legalism. And therefore, be free from legalists. When you are standing in the truth of the gospel, you should stand there with a clear conscience. Even though the tempter would say, but what would that legalist think about me? The stronger you stand in the truth, you'll be more like Paul. I don't care. Not in that situation. I don't care. It's not an issue of what I want to win you to Jesus. You're a legalist professing Jesus? He will deal with it head on. Don't fear religious people who focus on non-gospel minors and outward behavior of minor things. Don't cave. What will they think? I remember, some of you know this story. New Year's Day, 1986. 
I woke up for the first time in my life in Dallas, Texas, where I would be at school. Almost no one's on campus. It's New Year's Day. Uh, one of my friends who already lived there gave me his room key. I don't think it was legal, but anyway, I got the room key to his dorm and I slept there. And it's New Year's Day. And if, well, here's the legalist part of me. If you know anything about New Year's Day, you know what it's really supposed to be about. Absolutely. So, I'm in Dallas, New Year's Day, got a car, I know, I don't know where I'm at. I go downstairs in this large men's dormitory, and in the lobby there's like five guys. I say, hey, hey guys, anybody know where there's a pizza place or somewhere where they got a TV set where I could watch the bowl games? One guy spoke up and says, even if I did know, I wouldn't tell you. And he, because to him, the idea of being a Christian and sitting at a pizza bar watching football on a TV set, I think was evidently, in and of itself, sinful. So one of the other guys was cool enough, hey, now I'll let you know, okay. But, and if he knew what I had gone through the previous year and a half before that moment with him, <laughs> he, then he would have known that his comment meant zero to me then. It just went, didn't make me angry. It just went, made me feel sorry for him. And, and, and also think, oh God, let him really grow and don't go the other way. Okay. Don't fear legalists. On particular issues. Okay. When I open this up, this could be, no, no, no. This doesn't mean there's meat sacrificed to idols. And I understand all that. And there's places where, oh, I know that I could do that, but I won't do that for this because of this person. And th there's a difference. But when you're talking about legalists, there's a place where don't act and do stuff because you think you're going to please other people. It's a vicious, vicious cycle. Second lesson. We all have lapses of faith. We all sin. But God is gracious to His erring children. He sent Paul to confront Peter. In the Bible and people within your local church and even broader but starting with the local church we believers with the Bible, are each other's Paul's. Thirdly, Jesus Christ is our righteousness. We will try to make this clear over the next number of weeks. That's the core of the Gospel. And so grasping that, that Christ, not my moral improvement, and you know we believe in sanctification here, in pursuing holiness, in shunning sin, in repenting. But don't ever think, therefore, in my repentance, in my moral improvement, I stand on that now, is my righteousness. Christ is our righteousness before God. And understanding that is a huge weapon against the battle of what other people think. Because when you are enslaved to what other people think, it will constantly cause fear. Fear. Peter feared the party of the circumcision.
And fear will lead to compromise. And compromise will lead to hypocrisy. But know that the Gospel is my hope. Not the other person's approval. Finally, legalism, uh, we can spend sermons trying to define that. What it is and what's not. But legalism, my works, in other words, what I'm doing, if that's what makes me acceptable and worthy before God, legalism is deadly. Because it means that you are living and thinking in such a way that is out of step with the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Christian, we are called to walk. We're called to make steps daily in our life in line with the truth of the Gospel. Legalists don't do that. And therefore, understand the principle. Theology, what you think, what you understand about the message of Jesus, theology always and inevitably leads to practice, whether in step with or out of step with the Gospel. And that is where Paul goes next now. In Galatians. So, be hungry to pursue knowing the Gospel. Getting the Gospel right. So that as we walk, we know when we're walking out of step or when we're walking in step with the truth. Let's pray for God's loving, powerful Holy Spirit blessing to enact this in our lives. Father, thank You. (laughs) I just always find myself, Father, going back to that wonderful passage of Paul's. Thank You that You did not spare Your own Son, but You sent Him through His mother, Mary. You delivered Him up in a bloody death for all of us who would believe. You raised Him from the dead and therefore come hell or high water, pain, suffering, setbacks, joys and victories, whatever lay before. We know that You have us secure in Your Son. And therefore, Father, I beg that you make us here at Sovereign Grace really hungry to know with our heads in our minds as they will then connect with our feelings, our affections, our worship, our joy, our repentance, our walk, our evangelism over this great message of the truth of the Gospel. Do it all, Father, to the glory of Your Son. Amen.